Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. This is the next part of Dr. Bankole Johnson, University of Maryland, one of the world's authorities on addiction and also neurodiversity. Dr. Johnson, welcome. Thank you, and I'm so pleased to be on your show, and thank you for having me on your show. What I'd like you to tell our audience, because you are among the world's experts on alcohol, tell us what alcohol does to your brain, and use that as an example of neurodiversity. Gosh, you couldn't give me a simpler question, could you? (laughs) (laughs) So what happens when you drink? Let's say you take your very first drink. Our very first drink sends off a lot of signals in the brain. They usually start in what's called the monoamine system. And these basically warn you that you're about to drink. So, for example, if you went to a bar and you had a, a drink of alcohol, you start to feel the effects after about a couple of minutes with your buddies. Well, lo and behold, the alcohol doesn't reach your brain for even 15 minutes. So what is happening is your brain is pretending it has alcohol and it starts to process this information in different brain regions. If you start to drink a lot, what happens is your brain begins to get its genes to develop coding systems whereby it basically tries to keep as if the alcohol is there all the time. So it keeps sending these signals and you keep drinking. And if you keep drinking more, what happens is parts of the brain get destroyed. Parts of the brain that get destroyed or or the nerves begin to collapse in that part of the brain. The brain begins to fold and becomes more plastic. It basically begins to fold and shrink on itself. And sometimes when people drink too much, they can develop uh, dementias, they can develop memory impairment. And that's because of all this confirmation that is going on in the brain and the shrinkage of the brain and the expansion of spaces within the brain because the brain is a three-dimensional object and we do have spaces there so some of the spaces get larger so basically if you think there are holes in the brain the holes get bigger but the actual substances get less and this produces this neuroplastic conformational change in the brain that once it gets going it's very hard to stop indeed now another Another uh, thing that you've done is uh, to be part of the Maryland Emergency and Opioid Opioid Task Force. Tell us about that. Well, as you know, uh, Maryland has a significant epidemic with regards to um, opiate use disorder. In fact, it's estimated that up to 10% of people in the city have some kind of opiate use disorder or have a compulsion to use opiates. That's 60,000 people in just the city alone. And tell us, so, tell us uh, examples of opiates for our audience. Opiates are things like heroin, fentanyl, morphine. Um, sometimes it's methadone, but sometimes the methadone is used as a treatment. Um, Percocet has codeine in it as well, which is part of uh, uh, opiates. But there are a large number of this. Oxycodone is the one that is probably, or oxycontin is one that is probably uh, most familiar. And what tends to happen, what has happened is that the epidemic is now so large 
that the governor, Governor Hogan, did a, a really marvelous thing with, with the lieutenant governor in setting up this commission to try and study this problem and provide real answers that will help the citizens of Maryland. And hopefully other citizens of other places in other places in the United States. But this is a program that I think is so, so needed. You know, it's really very sad. If you if you come to some of these clinics and you see the level of suffering and you see people who are desperate and you see um, individuals that who have opiate use and is generational, you know, son is an addict, dad is an addict, mom is an addict. I mean, it's really, really uh, it's 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 a it's a level of human suffering that you have to do anything about if you're any kind of a humanitarian, let alone just a doctor. Go ahead and expound on on the on the opioids. Well, you know, one of the one of the um, myths, you know, medicine is surrounded by myths, just like in any special. One of the myths that used to be um, put into play was there was a time when people didn't really want to give pain meds at all. They were they were scared, and therefore the reps came along and said, so long as you give individuals opiates for pain, they can never become addicted. Well, it's really not true at all. And, and, and in fact, this, this myth has persisted, I would say almost to the present day. And when I was ill, um, not that long ago, and I was in a hospital and I had some pain, I was discharged with 60 tablets of OxyContin. What in goodness name would I be required to do with this? My, my wife saw this and she poured it down the toilet and I, and I helped to flush it down. One of the important things is most people and one of the things that you were doing in your days as a boxer was very smart. And I'll tell you why. Pain is an emotion. Everybody tends to just think of pain as a sensation. And most people who are, in, who are pain specialists know it's an emotion. Different people perceive different levels of pain. You can hit this one person in one way and they feel a lot of pain. Another person feels less pain. It's emotion. And it's dependent upon the person's emotional response and how they've had painful experiences in the past. And therefore, the treatment for pain is not just giving somebody a painkiller. It is an emotional part. There's an emotional component to it, whether it be that you give them a warm compress, whether it be that you talk with them, whether it be that they have electrical stimulation or something else. But the treatment of painful conditions is not simply giving somebody a painkiller. That is pretty poor medicine, you know, and, and that's what is usually done because it's fast, it's easy. You give someone a script and they're gone. Since you are one of the world's experts on addiction and alcoholism, if there's anybody in our different brains audience dealing with a loved one who might be an alcoholic or an addict, what's one pearl you might give them before you leave? Well, I'll be, I'll be quick. The, the best way of saying it is go and see your doctor and develop and ask and demand evidence-based treatment. Do not accept one type of treatment alone as a single modality for getting better. If your doctor says, just go and see X or just go and see Y, that is not good treatment. There are important guidelines that have been put up 
by the National Institutes of Health. In fact, I helped to write some of these clinical guidelines on how to approach this problem. And the doctors need to be able to do this. If you go to the NIAAA website, there is um, a protocol for how doctors should be able to assess, treat, and respond to people with alcohol use disorders. And if that doesn't work out, find your nearest academic center and try and go through their program to be able to get better. One of the important things I do want to say to your viewers for people who have alcohol use disorder is, and I'll just tell you another myth. The other myth is that it's somehow an intractable disease. People are hardly ever cured and people just get worse all the time. This is really far from the truth. The real issue is that a lot of people do get better from alcohol use disorder. In fact, the spontaneous remission rate alone in one year is 25%. So people do get better. The problem is the few people who don't get better, who have intractable problems, seem to be the ones that are held up as examples. Good treatment is important. And I've, I wrote a really important article, and it was actually confirmed by a study uh, done by the National Institutes of Health, that the first hour that you spend with a physician that knows what he's doing in treating you for alcohol use disorder accounts for almost 60% of your total recovery outcomes. So that doctor had better not get that first hour wrong. Otherwise, they've missed 60% of their opportunity to get you better. <laughs> Can you just say again how people can reach you, Dr. Johnson, because I would like our audience to know how they can reach you. Can you tell them how to get a hold of you? Well, the best way to get a hold of me is to go to the University of Maryland School of Medicine website. And on that website, you'll be able to find my email address and my telephone number. And you can either call me or you can email me and I'll make sure you get a response as quickly as I can. Thank you so much. Um, one more quick question. What was it like being in that HBO documentary, Addiction? <laughs> that was fascinating. That's a, that's a long story. You know, I, um, I, I was uh, working with the producer at HBO, and they called me, and they said, well, Bancoli, you know, it's okay if you have all of these patients that you've self-selected and you've got these great outcomes. But what we want to do is to see whether what you do works if we give you a real patient. I and mean, they defined a real patient as, as someone who they were going to find. And eventually they found this chap who might not have really qualified for one of our studies. And I said to them, all I need is 15 to 20 minutes a week with this gentleman. And I'll prescribe the medicine and do the psychological support. And I said, oh, no. They even chauffeured him from almost 40 miles away so I couldn't have any contact with him. And he had a great outcome. So I'm glad that worked out for him. And I'm glad that worked out for me as well, I suppose. But it was a demonstration that it can be done. And so the patients that were in the HBO program were selected by the producers just to make sure that they weren't friends of mine or they weren't my favorite patient or best outcome patients. And they made sure that they were really tough and they kept to the time. And so what you saw in that program was a very accurate representation of really the positive outcomes of having a combined treatment for alcohol dependence. That's great. Bencole, keep up the great work, man. You, you're, the, you're the best, I'm telling you. You're the man. 
You're, right. you're very, you're very kind. And I look forward to meeting you in person sometime too. And until uh, next time, Dr. Ben Cole Johnson, University of Maryland. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful rest of your day. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.